Welcome to the Millennial Therapist Podcast with Mao and Nao. This podcast is hosted by two millennial therapists who are true crime, forensic psychology, and macabre obsessed. This is not your typical mental health podcast where only mental health and social work topics are discussed. We dabble in various topics from cultural humility to military mental health to ghosts to interesting ways our parents use the paranormal to discipline us. Ed Kukui, anyone? <laughs> Why so many topics? Because we're millennials. To make things more interesting, one is an Air Force veteran and a mom of two, the other is currently serving active duty, and both are children of immigrants working to honor their ancestors. Hello, beautiful beings and homies. So let's just pretend that Nao and I didn't ghost you for months and enjoy this episode. We had an unexpected hiatus because of life. So we appreciate you guys not yelling at us and your continued support and enjoy this episode. That was supposed to be our last episode of season two. We plan to come back March, our one-year anniversary of the podcast. I can't tell you what day it was. I don't remember, but it will be posted. Until then, enjoy some of our lost episodes. And by lost, I mean just episodes I never posted. So, okay, bye. Love you guys. What's up, homies? Thank you for joining us at MTP with Mao and Nao, your favorite millennial therapists and queens of the dark abyss and weird. If this is your first time, welcome. Please subscribe, stay a wild, tell a friend, post it on Instagram, do something. And if you're returning, you the realist, please don't leave us. Listen, this is the last episode of our second season, and it's been wild. We cannot believe it. So we want to say Thank you so much for listening. I can't believe Nao and I had started recording, I think about December of last year, but we didn't post till March because we wanted to get some things squared away. So it's been so fun and amazing to find a community as disgruntled and bizarre and weird like us. We really love covering this topic talking about paranormal, finding folks that don't know what life is about. So we really appreciate y'all. So season three will continue to be as intense as we continue to cover some heavy hitters. So be prepared, as Uncle Scar would say. And to come full circle, we are covering an El Paso native, but totally get it if the homies don't want to rep him because it's Richard Ramirez, also known as Night Stalker. Oh, and if you didn't know, this is Mao, and that's Nao, and we're back together, baby. <laughs> so, Nao, since you and old boy have something in common, please get us started. Full disclaimer, that's about it as far as helping things in common. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, Richard Ramirez. So, he is, he is very well known in the community because, one, he's from El Paso, but also just some of the most heinous crimes you've ever heard anybody do. Let's go ahead and get started. So, Richard Ramirez dubbed the Valley Intruder because his attacks were first clustered in the San Gabriel Valley the walking killer, and most infamously, the Night Stalker. He was an American serial killer, serial rapist, 
kidnapper, child molester, and burglar, and he was convicted in 1989. Rap record is wow, just some of the most awful things you can think of. So who is Richard Ramirez? Ramirez was born Ricardo Leiva Muñoz Ramirez on February 29, 1960, in El Paso, Texas. He is the youngest of five children that were born to Mercedes and Julian Ramirez. His father Julian and his mother Mercedes are both uh, were both Mexican, but Mercedes was born in Colorado, so she had American citizenship. And they were also able to secure a home in El Paso where they would go on to raise their family. It is reported that Ramirez's father, a Mexican national and former Ciudad Juarez policeman, who later became a laborer on the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway, was an alcoholic who was prone to fits of anger that often resulted in physical abuse towards his wife and his children. Richard had three older brothers, Reuben, Joseph, and Robert, and a sister named Ruth. His sister said, and, and we quote, my brother never slept. He was always up and moving around at night. Their father, Julian, was known for his uncontrollable outrages and um, a behavioral pattern he likely inherited from his own father who would not hesitate to beat his children. Julian had sworn because of his violent upbringing, he would never lay a finger on his own children and instead turned to severe self-harm whenever he saw red. In childhood, the siblings recall their father was installing a sink in the kitchen and he could not get a fix to the, to, to the drain pipe. Julian stood up and in a fit of anger took a hammer and started hitting himself in the head so hard that blood eventually began running down his face. This was not the only incident in their childhood where they witnessed this kind of behavior from their father. Julian was also known to get so angry he would repeatedly smash his own head into a wall until he was knocked unconscious. So, you know, the traumatic brain injury. How terrifying. And just to watch your dad do that? Fuck. Right? Yeah. Later, he went against his word and began beating his eldest sons whenever he thought they had done something to deserve such punishment. Often, a young Richard would sleep in the local cemetery to get away from his father's temper. His cousin, Miguel Ramirez, or known as Mike, was on the same side of the family uh, that possessed the genes for a short fuse, and this had fatal results. Uh, Richard, or known as Richie, to most of his family, um, he was strongly influenced by his older cousin, Mike a decorated Green Beret combat veteran who he himself had already become a serial killer and a rapist in Vietnam, who often boasted of his brutal war crimes during the Vietnam War and shared Polaroid photos of his victims both during and after his crimes with his younger cousin Richard, including Vietnamese women he had raped, murdered, and dismembered. Many of the women and girls in the photos are shown to have been found uh, bound to trees with rope before Mike raped them, and afterwards having been killed by him, decapitating them with a machete. In some of the photos, Mike posed with the severed heads of women he had sexually assaulted and murdered. We're talking about somebody that's probably antisocial, just... Oh yeah, just having a fucking ball. Freaking international serial killer. Yeah, in the name of fighting communism like what the fuck that is intense and i think the reason you know we we wanted to really 
dig deep with Ramirez's history is because we always hear about him being this like intense serial killer and seeing his history yes he might have been prone with some shit but he was groomed by this fucking asshole and who would share yeah. that with like their younger nephew or with the child because at this point seriously he's 12, right so 12 years old at that point what yes. understanding do you have of intimacy or murder or death like much less in the context of war mm-hmm. yeah absolutely because and I, I had read too or i've heard that this is like right after he came back from the war so of course he was struggling with some shit on, on top of being you know probably antisocial. he didn't spend any time with his wife he would just smoke weed and hang out with richard I'm wondering, too, is he was using Richard as his, like, coping mechanism, you know? Yeah, because I, I don't think your nephew would tell you, oh, that's wrong, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah, right, like, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> that's not okay. <laughs> and so, um, so Meg had four medals and was considered a hero, and at one point, his platoon of 20 men were surrounded by the Viet Cong. Mike and another soldier were the only two to make it out alive. Mike loves that in Vietnam, he could let out all his anger and aggression on the Vietnamese prisoners as it was considered his duty. Nao's not going to say it, so I will. <laughs> no, I don't know what I'm going to say. I mean, I can go on a tangent, but yeah, no, I think finding finding murder and killing as an outlet speaks to the severity of your homicidal tendencies right like we all have some type of homicidal ideation but are we going to do it and i wonder would mike have done it if he was not in war and i think that's a whole nother discussion that you know we won't keep we won't have nao in because you know her duties but i have a another person that would be great to have this discussion is like how murder guised under fighting communism or terrorism is okay and then he has and that draws in some people it lets you justify really fucking layered and so um so mike had learned that the vietnamese people were superstitious and if they lost a body part then they would not go to heaven so mike took great pleasure in mutilating the bodies of the prisoners he captured Mike had a collection of Polaroids that showed the mutilation of prisoners and also the rapes of many women. He also had another collection of eight shrunken heads and said he'd use these as pillows to sleep on in Vietnam. He showed all of these photos and the shrunken heads to his impressionable cousin. Richard felt drawn to this kind of brutality. He had this confiding and domineering cousin who he looked up to as a hero and someone who could do no wrong in his eyes. Mike told Richard, having power over life and death was a high, an incredible rush. It was godlike. You controlled who lived and who died. Mike also taught Richard a jungle warfare, how to be invisible, how to kill with stealth, and how to burglarize homes. Mike told Richard, it's us, the poor and downtrodden, against them, the rich and influential. It can, of course, be assumed that his young cousin used these techniques when he became the Night Stalker in Los Angeles and would break into people's homes in affluent neighborhoods whilst under the cover of darkness and dressed in all black. One survivor testified in court that the Night Stalker had awoken her about 1 a.m. on May 30, 1985, 
by shining a flashlight in her face. He told her, get up, don't make any noise. Hernandez said, he went over to my son's bed and got up on top and put a gun to his head and told him not to do anything. She testified that he handcuffed her son's hands behind his back and ransacked her home for money and jewelry. He then placed a pillow over her head and raped her. Mike had received no counseling when he returned home from war, and he had no sense of direction in his life. All he wanted to do was drive around in his car all day, telling his young cousin plenty of gruesome war stories whilst they both spot. Richard would later state while incarcerated that he was never shocked or repulsed by these images and stories of his cousin's wartime atrocities in Vietnam, but that they fascinated him. Richard, who had begun smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol at the age of 10, bonded with Mike through the two smoking joints and drinking beers while Richard listened to his elder cousin's gruesome war stories. On May 4, 1973, when his cousin Mike fatally shot his wife Jessie in the face with a handgun during a domestic argument, like the graphic photos and stories of his cousin's war crimes in Vietnam, Richard Ramirez would later similarly remark while in prison that seeing this event unfold wasn't traumatic for him in any traditional sense but rather witnessing a violent death for the first time had deeply fascinated him. After the shooting, Richard became sullen and withdrawn from his family and peers. Julian Ramirez went to the apartment where Jesse had been killed to clean up the blood and he took Richard along with him. This was another huge turning point in young Richard's life, he said. That day I went back to the apartment. It was like some kind of mystical experience. You could smell the dried blood. I look at the place where Jesse had fallen and died, and I got this kind of tingly feeling. Later that year, Richard moved in with his older sister Ruth and her husband Roberto, an obsessive peeping Tom who took Richie along on his nocturnal exploits. So, like, all the men in his life <laughs> are trash! Seriously, like, they're. Oh my god. Poor. Okay. Listen, y'all. Don't fucking come at me, okay? Don't at me, but I feel bad for him little richard because he wasn't out here killing shit because let's talk about btk season one right little little uh dennis raider was fucking bounding animals and stuff i have not heard or read about little richie killing anybody or anything yet right like starting on so let's remember that I was listening to another podcast about him and they had mentioned that as a child he was very reserved and introspective super quiet unless he was super stealth about killing animals and shit I, th I don't think he was showing any of that antisocial conduct behavioral behavior it was just the fucking awful people in his life and the trauma that he has witnessed and experienced with that being said he still is has done monstrous fucking things so I guess. and then if he sees like these men getting away with things like this oh, like yeah. he's learning that um with violence comes power yes and control and you could, absolutely and you could be immune to the consequences yeah, and, and also that's the only way to express his feelings is through that those type of behaviors and rage. And so by the time Ramirez had turned 14 in early 1974, 
he began using LSD frequently and cultivated an interest in Satanism in the occult. Malik was found not guilty of Jesse's murder by reason of insanity, largely thought to be due to his presumed severe wartime PTSD from his time serving in Vietnam, and was released in 1977 after four years of incarceration at the Texas State Mental Hospital. His influence over Ramirez continued and it's known that Mike resumed occasionally bonding with Richard over a shared use of drugs and alcohol and that he sometimes accompanied Richard and Roberto on their nighttime voyeuristic walks where they would spy on women in the nearby areas without their knowledge through their windows. So let's talk about adolescence. So the adolescent Ramirez began to meld his burgeoning sexual fantasies with graphic violence including forced bondage, murder, mutilation, and rape. While still in school, he took a job at a local Holiday Inn where he used his passkey to rob sleeping patrons. On at least one occasion, Ramirez sexually fondled and molested two children in an elevator at the hotel, but was never reported or prosecuted for this act. His employment ended abruptly after Ramirez attempted to rape a woman in her hotel room before her husband returned to find them. Although the husband beat Ramirez senseless at the scene, criminal charges were dropped when the couple who lived out of state declined to return to Texas to testify against him. Okay, so I take back. <laughs> I take back what I said. No, I still stand by like the little kid stuff. But yeah, I mean, with adolescence, I think that is absolutely learned behavior and unprocessed whatever the fuck he learned from Mike. And yeah, and at, his uncle. And at 14, you kind of get a sense of direction of what's like right and wrong. That could have been one way the court could have intervened. And I'm not putting this on a couple, no, not at all. But yeah, that's hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think too, you know, adolescence, that's hormones, puberty, right? So I wonder, you know, his normal hormones, puberty was emerging but he didn't know how to process it and even understand what that meant because he had all of these visions and learned thoughts and behaviors from his brother-in-law and and mike like that his the only way to get your um needs like sexual needs met or whatever is through bondage murder mutilation rape which is all shit he saw firsthand from Mike. Yeah. And then the other thing too, and I'm not saying this happens in all cases, but sometimes when children go on to molest other children, it's because they were molested themselves. Yeah. And I know there's no mention of that so far, Ooh. but you know what yes. I'm saying? Like, yes. That's such a good point. Holy shit. Why didn't I think of that? Dude, I would not be fucking surprised if Mike. Again, speculation, allegedly, in my opinion, don't come for us. But no, I think that is a really good point, Nao, of like, we don't know if, if he was not abused, sexually abused by Mike. Because if we look at it, he was an, he was an older, he was an older male figure that had, obviously, his trust. Um, and they're hanging out all the time doing drugs. And then not only just hanging out, but grooming him, essentially. True. Yep. Yep. So, like, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes people become disinhibited with the use or the presence of substances. So, mm-hmm. it's just speculation that combined yeah. with whatever 
paraphilic or I don't even know what to call it that right. the uncle had. Um, right. Yeah, because Mike, yeah, because Mike, I mean, he openly talked about raping young girls on top of the fucking awful other things too so yeah i wouldn't be i would not be surprised if that happened to ramirez and especially the way he that manifested in his own behavior at adolescence Mm -hmm. yeah that was a really good point yeah oh just just like we like we're saying we're not justifying or Mm -hmm. you know in any way excusing behavior but a lot of this is it's like the family systems environmental like there's a lot in his background that's just just unhealthy violent and abusive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's not and mentioned so, and talked about enough mm-hmm. and so uh ramirez dropped out of jefferson high school in the ninth grade at the age of 22 in 1982 he decided to move to california where he settled permanently It was around this time that Richard Ramirez began to use cocaine, which would very quickly become his main substance of choice. And sometimes shortly after this began, he would commit theft and burglaries to get money he would use for buying more cocaine. Um, He would live anywhere between San Francisco and Los Angeles County during this uh, his time living in the state before he was incarcerated. He was known to frequently travel between the northern and southern areas of the state of California, both before and during his year-long crime spree. On June 28, 1994, Ramirez committed his first murder. The 79-year-old victim was sexually assaulted, stabbed, and murdered in her own home. In just one year, Ramirez had murdered over a dozen people and and tortured 25 people. So again, this is not the full scope of his whole everything, right? There's so much. I mean, there was a whole ass documentary on him on Netflix. I think it was a series. So there there it goes a lot more into the crimes and stuff. It didn't go much into his history. So I feel like we're maybe filling in some, some more info about that. Because again, it just covered the crimes and the police investigation. So if you're not hearing us mention a lot of the things that happened with each crime, it's because we didn't want to cover it more. You can hear that in other spots. And so, which means we didn't go into the back and forth of him being in like San Francisco, LA. And I think there was maybe some, um, there was a situation in Arizona where he may have committed some murders. But I know there was some shit that happened in San Francisco when he went up where he could have gotten away. Um, so, yeah. So Netflix, it's a good one. Um, Here we will talk about a little more of his crimes and details about him. So this is from one of the articles. It'll be listed in the show notes. It's a list of 10 most terrifying details about Richard Ramirez. So his murders were extremely bloody. You probably know how vicious his crimes were, but... He had a pattern. He killed the man in the house, sexually assaulted a woman, and always made sure he could see the fear in his victim's eyes. In the early days of his crimes, he knocked on the car hood of Maria Hernandez so she could see him before the attack. And he yanked Silian Veronica Yu 
out of her car instead of just shooting her through the window. So he really wanted that like human contact or that like that really close contact. In Whittier, he cut out Maxine Zara's eyes and took them with him. Fuck! This is dark. Investigators identified him as an enraged killer because of how viciously his victims had been killed. In one case, the victim, Patty Higgins, was slashed and stabbed in the throat. And then another victim, Floris Nettie Lang, who was 81, was beaten to death with a hammer. I mean, a lot of his, it sounds like a lot of his victims were women. So, I mean, again, there was some shit with that. The second fucked up detail. In the docuseries, so I'm assuming this is the, the Netflix docuseries, Detective Frank Salerno says that Richie got comfortable after killing someone. So comfortable he would take the time to have a snack. And he says that's a pretty sick individual. Indeed, he would help himself to food and drinks in the kitchen after his crime. When he continued his killing spree in San Francisco, Bay Area police said that he killed an accountant. He killed an accountant named Peter Pan and raped his wife, Barbara, ate everything in the fridge, threw up in the kitchen floor, masturbated on the living room floor. Then wrote a satanic symbol on the wall. Richie, what the fuck? And then third, shoe trail. One of the only trails investigators had was a shoe print he left in a flower bed in one of his earlier murders. In the process of finding the shoe to match it, investigators found out that it was an Avia brand shoe, an uncommon one at the time. So they actually went straight to the manufacturer. They looked at spreadsheets where the shoes were distributed to in the U.S., and the only size 11.5 black shoes were manufactured. Five went to Arizona and one went to L.A. Uh, Salerno, the detective, said he could have left us a signed signature. However, that led that lead would cause some issues down the line. Somehow, reporters heard about the shoe print lead and threatened to print it. Come the fuck on. This was problematic for investigators because that would mean the killer could just change his shoe and the lead would go cold. Um, but the reporters were convinced to withhold that information. But one political figure would make a damning mistake later on. We talk about that later. Buck up, dudes. Buckle up. There's some more shit. Sorry. Um, number four of the gory details is that he also assaulted children um he did not spare the children unfortunately on earlier in his killing spree there were series of young children that had been taken from their beds assaulted and then abandoned um there was actually a six-year-old survivor or one of the six-year-old survivors would be crucial in identifying ramirez later on um and in some cases he would sexually assault the child that he came across during a burglary so it was a hot-ass mess. Jesus. Um, there were satanic symbols. Now, Nao and I didn't go too much into it in this episode, but I think we'll, I think it plays a big part because he was also known as a satanic ritual killer or something. I don't know, but he had the pentagram on his hand. Um, so it wasn't until Ramirez left a pentagram written with lipstick on the wall and on the leg of a victim that investigators drew the connection to satanic worship. They were also concerned that he was a copycat of Charles Manson. 
in the following years, he would leave more of these pentagrams behind and would also tell his victims to swear to Satan instead of God. During a court appearance, he held the pentagram after pleading not guilty. He said, hail Satan. I think this, around this time, was the um, satanic panic time frame of the 80s. Um, so I think he really played on to that because he wasn't, he was a little shit and he was a, a instigator and knew like how much that scared people. And I also think he was pushing a, up against his religious background. His mom was a um, devout Catholic. So I know that was a piece that played into like him looking into Satanism and stuff. But yeah, I think he really played into that persona about, about Satan. So definitely don't want to, make that connection that he was a killer because he was practicing Satanism because that's not it at all. Another time that was interesting was that um, he was almost apprehended several times. One time he attempted to kid, he attempted a kidnapping, he attempted a kidnapping, but it failed. And while he was driving away, he committed a traffic violation that a cop saw. While being pulled over, Ramirez heard a broadcast of his kidnapping attempt on the radio. And then he drew a pentagram on the hood of his stolen car and began running. And I think I'm pretty sure he got away. Um, and, Ramirez is no, and also Ramirez is known to have extremely bad teeth and... In the stolen car, they had they had found a business card for a dentist's office, and upon investigation, they had found a man named Richard Mina had been in and gotten X-rays done, which showed that he had an infected tooth and that he would be back. Guess what? Spoiler alert: It was Ramirez. Um, investigators put two officers in the dentist's office to be ready. But as time went on, without a sign of Ramirez, the dentist's office suggested installing an alarm that the employees could press when he came back, directly alerting the cops, which they did. However, when he came back and the alarm was pressed and it didn't go off. So they missed him again. Where Detective Gil Carrillo said, how many more people are going to die? And to go back to the San Francisco mishap, um, when Ramirez killed the accountant Peter Pan in his San Francisco home in 1985, evidence of the crime made it all the way up to then Mayor Diane or Diane Feinstein, which would be a tipping point in the investigation. Holding a news conference, she held up a police sketch of the killer and also went on to describe the evidence from all the cases throughout the state. Crucial information that had not been made public. And by then, investigators knew Ramirez was watching the news because he told a surviving victim, I am the Night Stalker. She even gave up the caliber of the gun, the type of shoe, and the fact that he left footprints. So without a doubt, Frank Falzon, a police, a San Francisco police inspector said, the mayor made a big mistake. But it turns out the chief of police had never told her not to release it and they were never be able and they were never able to find the shoes after that. And um, another part that they talked about was his childhood and we we went into the details earlier so I won't go into that but yeah. Um but the, this this uh, particular article did mention that his dad 
um, supposedly tied him to a cross in a graveyard overnight as a form of punishment. I don't know um, how accurate that is. I didn't see anywhere else, but that was that was um, something that was supposedly done. Um, it, but he did later in an interview from jail say he posed the question of whether serial killers are born or bred. So I went in there a little bit of insight. Lastly, um, Ramirez was finally apprehended. He called the detective Mr. Salerno as a sign of respect. Um, but he also looked up to the hillside strangler who Salerno had previously apprehended. The detective had said in the documentary he was a student. I don't know that was what. So to persuade Ramirez to talk, they put him in the same cell as a hillside strangler, and he got excited. And he later asked Salerno and Carrillo if they would be attending his execution. So he really liked the detectives, I guess. I don't know. So, yeah, that's kind of intense. So that is some of a quick rundown of the the gory things that have happened. Again, you can watch a documentary or listen to other podcasts that really deep dive into that. That's we don't want to get more, but we mentioned some. So let's talk about how this motherfucker got caught. So, again, we saw that there was a lot of close calls right he just kept eluding he was slippery as fuck so on august 30th 1985 ramirez took a bus to tucson arizona to visit his brother and unaware that he had become the lead story in virtually every major newspaper and television news program across california so after failing to meet his brother due to him not being home ramirez returned to los angeles early in the morning of august 31st he walked past police officers who were staking out the bus terminal in hopes to catching the killer should he attempt to flee outbound. They did not anticipate him coming inbound. Um, and he went into a convenience store in East L.A. Now, East L.A. is somewhere you don't fuck around with. So, makes sense why he got caught there. So after noticing a group of elderly Hispanic women fearfully identifying him as El Matador, literally the killer in Spanish. Is it literally the killer in Spanish? Yes, El Matador. Yeah. <laughs> Just had to double check. Um, Ramirez saw his face on the front of the newspaper La Opinion with a headline calling him Invasor Nocturno the night invader so they had already had the sketch but can we talk about nail nail i'm gonna post this but do you remember the sketch that they had drawn yeah <laughs> yes i did <laughs> included in the instagram post <laughs> there was a meme that showed like why people couldn't fucking catch him and it was like the sketch of the night walker stalker and then ramirez like that's why they could not catch him because it looked nothing like him i think so guys part of the yeah. reason why he got some of these uh nicknames is because unlike other serial killers he's very unusual in his patterns um like it wasn't just women mm-hmm. or it wasn't just men or just kids right like, he he varied in, in in his victims so i think that's why they they kind of came about the night stalker um so yeah, and mm-hmm. and I and I hadn't thought about that where it's like, oh man, this is uh, 
he was just a violent, aggressive person. <laughs> it didn't matter who you were. If he was preying on you, you were going to die. Yeah, absolutely. There's just such, such rage and such impulsive and compulsion too, right? And I think, I mean, and I would, I, I don't know if he was necessarily even like a legit stalker stalker in the, in the, in the aspect or in the realm of like stalking out his victims before it happened. I don't know. I didn't read much into that. Maybe he was, but yes. Um, he just had so much stuff going on. Um, obviously. So he, so he saw that the newspaper had, um, had his face on there and fled in the store in a panic. And then he, ran out, went across the Santa on a freeway, which is I-5, attempted to carjack an unlocked Ford Mustang, but then he was pulled out by angry resident Fastino Pion. Pinon? Pinon? Right. Um, then Ramirez ran across the street, attempted to take the car from uh, Angelina de la Torre, but her husband, Manuel de la Torre, witnessed attempt and struck him over the head with a fence post. Like, these fucking people showed up. Yeah, Manny was like, not today. <laughs> yes. He's like, you get off of my angel. <laughs> I'm going to beat your ass. He stepped into the wrong neighborhood. So a group of over 10 residents formed and chased Ramirez down the Hubbard Street in Boyle Heights. And then a group of citizens forced and held Ramirez down and beat the shit out of him. And they actually talk a lot more about this in the, the documentary. But I think they even like started seeing his face like in the he was taking the bus and stuff. So around 8 a.m. <laughs> Dude, I don't even think. <laughs> All right. So let me read this at around 8 a.m. Police were called over a disturbance in the area with few details with indications of a fight. They didn't even call and said we found Ramirez. They just beat the shit out of him. And somebody had to call outside and be like, ah. I guess somebody's got to call it in. Who's going to take off for the team? <laughs> for real. Like, I guess it's time to get this motherfucker. Like, oh my god. I love that. So the police arrived at the uh, 3700 block of Hubbard quickly and found that Ramirez was severely beaten, unarmed, and then they took him into custody. The crowd grew to several hundred people and began to grow unruly toward Ramirez and responding officer Andy Ramirez, no relation, stayed behind while officer Jim Kaiser drove Ramirez to the Hollenbeck police station. Yeah, and and I think they have footage of that, so you got to watch the footage. Like, he just looks, he looks scared, honestly. And there's a bunch of angry-ass brown folks. Like, yeah, they did the work. So, after many delays in 1989, Rivera's age 29, was sentenced to the conviction of 13 murders, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. He was sentenced to die in California's gas chambers. His remarks to this were, big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. This dude, like, I mean. All I can think about when he talked about Disneyland was about uh, King Cole. You remember Yes, that Kip. Yeah. Kip, yeah. What Kip the King fuck? Cole. 
He was all talking about, do you think people go to Disneyland for the rides? <laughs> it's like Mickey Mouse's capitalism or some shit. So that's what he said. And and I'm not even going into this, but like he had some groupies. Like he had some intense groupies once he like during his trial. Almost immediately after Richard Ramirez was arrested, Doreen Leoy realized that she was attracted to him. She was not deterred by the fact that he was found guilty of horrific crimes like slashing women's throat so deeply that she was nearly decapitated to gouging others' victims' eyes out. She also didn't mind his Satanism, which he flaunted during the trial. You know, girl just wanted to give him some love. So she remained unconvinced of his guilt. What? She didn't think he did it? Is that what it means? What does is, what is remained unconvinced of his guilt mean? I guess she was like, Richard didn't do it. I just know he didn't do it. And then we're like, yeah, he was jumped by the whole barrio, like, for like a reason. <laughs> for real, the whole barrio beat his ass for good reason. Like, Chocolates and everything. My dude. Okay. She's not the only woman, the only woman who sent Ramirez love letters. But she was the most persistent. Congratulations. She sent him 75 letters in 11 years. She became his biggest fucking defender in the public eye. Sometimes even praising his character in interviews. He was kind. He was funny. He was charming, she told CNN. I think he's a really great person. I cannot get through this. Ma'am. Like we said, learning... The childhood he went through, understanding more. But to say that he is kind and a great person, no, no, no. (laughs) And she also said he's my best friend. He's my buddy. So on October 3rd, 1996, dude, me and Justin, my husband, partner, um, Our anniversary is October 8th, so I got kind of shook when I saw that date of like, oh my god, do I share something with him? So no, which is a few days. So October 3rd, 1996, prison staff secured a visiting room for the couple and allowed them to get married. Much to the disdain of the families of Ramirez's victims. On their big day, Leoy bought a gold band for herself and a platinum one for richard since he had already explained to her that satanists don't wear gold and your man choosy for real and platinum's like how expensive isn't it like all right baller man i like to think of it's like leo what have you been through that this is like for real your your love prospect who hurt you yes why is this your why is this your love language (laughs) Help us understand. Just I know, I know, and you know what? I only watched like literally a minute of her speaking because it was just like, like I love him. He's a good person. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? At least what's the denial? I guess for me because like I can understand if you're like as dark as them, right? And be like, oh yeah, like he killed a shit ton of people, but I still love him for it. Or you know what I mean? Or like he's a Satan's fucking dude but like for him to be like oh no but he's a good person it's it's just like the level of either she never saw the news and didn't know what he was convicted for 
Yeah. Um, and just bought his version of the story. Um, True. True. Or or she or she saw it and she was still like, "That's the man for me." Yeah, like not enough. He's so cute. So ultimately, their relationship most likely did not end well. There's kind of like it's sparse information. It never mentioned that they got divorced, but I guess they did not see each other for a few years before he died. So I guess there was something that kind of drove them apart. And some believe that the 2009 evidence of him murdering a nine-year-old girl in 1984 was too much for Leoy. Others argued that maybe his health problems led to the couple's separation. So I I saw more articles about her finding out about the nine-year-old. But, I mean, that's not the only child that he, he killed and assaulted. So, I don't, I don't know what that was about. Ultimately, um, Ramirez was never executed via gas chamber, as it was initially stated. Because he was on death row for that fucking long, right? If we look at the time where he was convicted, it was 1989. And he, instead of being executed, had died of complications from B-cell lymphoma in 2013. So, that is the early life and adult life of Richard Ramirez. Um, Make sure you follow us on Instagram at mtpodcast with Nayo and let us know your thoughts and if you're following or if you're listening to us on Spotify, I guess there's a cool little option where I, like we'll pose a question and you can write whatever you want. So I will open that up and say, leave us a love note. So leave us a love note. And also, please review and what is it? Just review us, I guess, on, on Apple Podcasts and give us some stars if you would like. Um... And yeah, I think that's all I have for you guys this episode. Nail anything? And nope. But if you're into some light reading, <laughs> <laughs> the FBI records, uh, there's a vault that contains 550 pages of articles in which uh, Richard's life is documented, as well as all his crimes. What? So we'll put that link in the in the uh, in the description. But um, it documents everything from um, from the infamous drawing <laughs> um, <laughs> all the way to, uh, they call it investigative supportive data. So it's all like the journalism okay. and investigative work into finding ah. out who this Night Stalker is. Okay. Very cool. Just light reading. Um, definitely. <laughs> Definitely don't expect all that information in this podcast. <laughs> Just the spark notes, but awesome. Well, thanks for listening, y'all. We love you. Till next time. <laughs> Nao and I can't see each other. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye, y'all. Take care and be safe. Till next time, homies. Keep it real. Peace. <laughs> Thank you for joining us and be sure to come back next week where we continue to explore true crime 
psychology, the paranormal, mental health, and everything in between. We would love to hear from you. So email us at millennialtherapistspod at gmail.com with your ghost stories, paranormal experiences, questions about therapy and counseling, or the social work field. And don't forget to share, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Remember, you are valued, you are enough, and you are not alone. Please subscribe and review. Although we are licensed mental health therapists and may cover therapy-related subjects, the topics in this podcast should not substitute professional, psychological, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you are a victim of a crime which includes but not limited to stalking, human trafficking, financial crimes, or sexual assault, please know the Victim Connect Resource Center can help. They are a referral helpline where crime victims can learn about their rights and options confidentially and compassionately. A traditional telephone-based helpline is 1-855-4-VICTIM or 1-855-4-842846. Or you can connect with them at chat.victimconnect.org or at the website victimconnect.org. If you or someone you know is in crisis, whether they are considering suicide or not, please call the toll-free lifeline available 24-7 across the United States by calling one 800 273 8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. U.S. and Canadian listeners can also text HOME to 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor. U.K. listeners text HOME to 85258 and Ireland listeners text HOME to 50808. For more mental health resources and support, international listeners can visit the website unitedgmh.org slash mental-health-support to find more mental health services and resources. And if you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, connect with the Veteran Crisis Line to reach caring, qualified responders with the Department of Veterans Affairs at 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 or text 838-255. Or you can always visit veteranscrisisline.net If you or anyone you know may be experiencing domestic violence, you can find resources and support with the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Visit thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233.